Let's turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I don't know for sure if this is my last message on the Godly Ladies and Gentlemen series. It might be. But I feel like in my studies, I didn't intend this, but through studying on the messages and on this particular series and subject, I have found myself coming full circle. If you recall, months ago, 1 Timothy 2 is where we started. And I did not intend that, I didn't know that we would wind up right back there, but I feel like that's somewhat a full circle back to 1 Timothy 2. And the text that we use from 1 Timothy 2 is in verse 5. And we'll read that to set the context of what I want to talk to you about today. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We've been speaking about godly ladies, women, and godly gentlemen, godly men. We're not using some modern or ancient book of etiquette that men have come up with. We're using the Word of God. And as I've said many times, if there was ever a time that God's children need to stand out and could stand out, this is the time where you will stand out by being a godly lady and a godly gentleman. I tell you, we need it so bad. We need it as a witness for the Lord in His kingdom. We need it for the glory of God. And if you're trying to remember how we started out here in the Godly Ladies and Gentlemen series, we went ladies first from 1 Timothy 2 on down towards the end of the chapter. We talked about how the attitude of the heart shows itself in the modesty of a person's dress or, or lack of it. We talked about how women professing godliness, it's more important for them to be clothed with good works. That's what this teaches in 1 Timothy 2. And then we kind of branched out from there and talked about how all of us, but specifically we were talking about the sisters, the ladies, should make room for the prophet should make room for the man of God in their life. I'm not talking about a husband. I'm talking about the preachers. And if you look around you today and say, you know, I just really don't have men of God. You know, not, it's not prophets nowadays. In the Old Testament it was prophets, but it's the preachers today. If I really don't have any men of God in that sense around me, well, then I need to, I need to make some changes. We use the great Shunammite woman in the Old Testament who made room. She literally made a room on her house for the prophet Elisha. And then we moved into the subject of the men, looking for a few good men, that God is looking for a few good men. And feminism and being effeminate, there's so much of that today. It works against being a godly man. Then we talked about Adam, who was created to lead. It's very important if you're talking about men, probably a good idea to look at the first man. And that was Adam. He was created to lead. And it's so interesting that it appears from the, the Scripture that Adam and Eve, in a sense, were created as, as co-vice regents of creation. You don't see any differentiation in roles before sin. I, th I found that kind of astonished me as I studied. And I've been studying the Scripture for years. But it was astonishing to see that there was no distinction made between well, you know, the man does this, the woman does it. They were, they were together. They were together in all that they did until sin comes along. Adam was created to lead, and then after he sinned in the garden, he was cursed to lead. And that's when you begin to see the roles being defined. And that's where we have a lot of the issues that we still deal with today. <laughs> you see? Then we talked about Abraham being the friend of God. And that Abraham's friendship status you know, everybody's into, you know, what's your status, you know, online or whatever. You know, what's your friendship status? Are you in a relationship, out of a relationship? Are you friends? Are you not friends? Are you friending this person? Well, Abraham's friendship status depended on how he followed the commandments of God. God called him his friend because he followed the commandments of God. You want to be the friend of God? Men, women, children, follow the commandments of God. And then we talked about David, who was a man after God's own heart. <laughs> And that, that meant this, that the way that David thought and felt towards certain things was the way God thought and felt towards certain things. Do you even know how God feels towards 
this, that, or the other. The only way to know that is to study the character of God. It's very easy to find out. And then maybe we need to adjust our thinking so we can think and feel the same way God thinks and feels towards certain things. So that's kind of the journey. I'm just recapping that so you can see we've started over here in the New Testament and we looped way back over to the dawn of time and coming back through some history. And now we're back to 1 Timothy 2. The man, Christ Jesus. And in the man, Christ Jesus, you have the heart of God revealed. The heart of God is revealed. He's the ultimate man. You know, I think it was Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, you know, that proposed this idea this godless idea of the Superman. A few months ago, we talked about some of that. He was one of the great influencers over a hundred year period. And he proposed the idea of the Superman, which I mentioned then, and it's worth mentioning again. That's where Hitler got his idea for the master race from. They viewed themselves as the Aryan race, the supermen and women. That was certainly a so a man's idea gone to seed, wasn't it? Wound up, to the, wound up leading to the murder of seven million or more people. And no telling how many countless others died in, that, in World War II, in addition to the Jews being him trying to exterminate the Jews. It all came from the Superman idea. Well, Nietzsche was a little too late because there's already a Superman. It's kind of a side note. You know, I love comics, but that's where, that's where the guys got their idea for Superman, the comic book. <laughs> there's already a Superman. And it's Christ. Now listen, you ladies listen to this and whether you shout out amen or whatever and you're thinking in your mind, yes, yes. And remember, there, there's only one Christ. Your man or your future man is not going to be Jesus Christ. He's not going to be perfect. You understand that? But this is the model, men. This is what we strive for. This is what we should study and hone our skills and sharpen ourselves. The man Christ Jesus Christ has been so thoroughly feminized in the religious world over the last hundred or so years that many men just don't feel like they can identify with Christ anymore. And that is, that is the fault of men and women that that has occurred. So we don't want to see Christ as some weak, sissy-looking uh, man floating around, you know, one foot off the ground with a halo over his head like a lot of the pictures and even movies and paintings depict him. He was not that way. He was a real man. He was all flesh and blood and he was all God. He worked in a carpenter shop and he was tough. He was able to hang out with fishermen and he was able to get along with all types of different men and converse with them, farmers, fishermen, ordinary people like you and me. So we don't want to lose sight of who Christ is. And then we lose sight of who we are as men. He's the wild, untamed center of the universe. I often refer back to the Chronicles of Narnia. And when the Pevensey children first encountered Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, they were having a discussion with Mr. and Ms. Beaver, some of you that have read that. And one of the Pevensey children said, is he safe? Is Aslan the type of Christ that C.S. Lewis put in that book? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You understand that? He's not safe. If you feel safe and comfortable and, oh, Jesus, he's my buddy. You know, he's just going to come on and around and just, you know, do what I ask him to do, like a genie in the lamp, rub the lamp, get my wishes. You don't understand anything about Christ. He's not safe. <laughs> he's the wild, untamed center of the universe but he's good. Praise God. If he wasn't good, we'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so let's consider a few scenes from the book of John as we consider the gospel of John, as we consider the man, Christ Jesus. And we draw some lessons from the man, Christ Jesus, and his interactions with, you, maybe you guessed it, with women. Christ's interaction with women. Is that not where the rub comes down to? You know, husbands and wives, they get crossed up. Boyfriends and girlfriends, they get crossed up. Friendships even can get crossed up. <laughs> How do we interact as men with the females in our life? That's what we want to look at. We want to see Christ. Four scenes, four instances where Christ is interacting with females, with women. So let's consider that as we look at the man, Christ Jesus. And I don't mind telling you, one of these scenes came from 
a study that Sister Lila had going on last week, and we talked about it in one of our devotions, and it just, it just struck me and took a hold of me, and it hadn't let go. So we'll look at one of those scenes in just a minute. But John, the fourth chapter, is the first scene from the marriage in Cana of Galilee where he went to a man and a woman's wedding to the tragic scene of the cross. We see that Christ had much interaction and dealings with women. And men, women, boys, girls, maybe we can take some lessons from this about our attitude towards one another, how it should be, and how our interactions should be. John, the fourth chapter, begin reading in verse one. We're gonna, I've got four to look at, and I fully intend to get to all of them, so we're going to touch on each one of these. So let's move on as we read. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, notice the language, being wearied with his journey. He's weary, he's hungry, and he's thirsty. Don't ask me how that works with him being God also. God never hungers, never thirsts, and all of that. I just know it's holy script, and he says he was hungry and he was thirsty. He suffered himself to be in the condition of a man while at the same time being God. And that's one of the mysteries of Jesus that you could study on for the rest of your life and never fully understand it. So he being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. Y'all got that picture in your mind? And it was about the sixth hour, high noon. It was a showdown here at high noon. And there cometh a woman of Samaria. You, don't wanna, you wanna know why he must needs go through Samaria? Because he had an appointment with a woman. And as he sits himself down and the disciples have already gone into the city, to get food. And the drink is right there, the well's right there, but they're going to get food. And this woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Jesus says unto her, give me to drink. Now this woman was not a Jewish woman. She was a Samaritan, which the Jews hated the Samaritans. And don't feel too sorry for the Samaritans because the Samaritans hated the Jews. I mean, it was a complete racial animosity there. And of course, you know, when I say race, I, I keep correcting myself because there's only one race. There's the race of humankind. But there's different shades of people and how they look. But there's one blood and one race. So there was this nationalism. That's probably a better way to put it. The, the Samaritans had this nationalism hatred towards the Jews. And the Jews saw themselves as better than the Samaritans and had this hatred, nationalistic type hatred towards them. So it was very unusual to find a Jewish person interacting with a Samaritan. That'll give you a little insight as to why Jesus uses the example of the good Samaritan later on in some of his teachings. But that's for another day. So here Jesus sits down on the side of the well. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's weary from his journey. And he says, give me to drink. And the woman says back to him in verse 9, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me? which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This is all true. And watch the language now. Because Jesus is not only teaching us how to interact with one another as men and women, He's also teaching about breaking down divisions in this type of mentality that they had towards each other, the Samaritans towards the Jews, the hatred that they had. And Jesus says, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given them the living water. He's referring to himself. If you knew who I was, you would ask me to give you living water, and I'd give it to you. And the woman says, she's thinking about the well. Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. He's pointing to the well. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And the woman kind of catches on. She understands he's talking about something spiritual. And so the first thing to note here is the spiritual interaction that's going on between Jesus and this woman at the well. There's a spiritual element going on here. And Jesus says, go call thy husband and come hither. Before I share this with you, because I want you to call your husband and come hither. And the woman says, I have no husband. Of course, Jesus knew that. <laughs> and then he begins to 
what we would say when, when it comes to preaching. You'd say, oh, the preacher's gone to meddling. <laughs> Here Jesus begins to meddle, which he has every right to. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, thou hast well said that I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. Can you imagine how that woman's eyes went up? <laughs> he knows all about me. Has he done a background search on me? Well, I can assure you, yes, he did. <laughs> For thou hast had five husbands. You see what kind of woman that he's dealing with here? Do you see this? This was a five-time divorced woman who was now living with a man. You see, not only is Jesus breaking down the nationalistic barriers between the Samaritans and the Jews, but he's, he's going even further than that and dealing with a person who did, did not have a very good reputation. You see that? And isn't it wonderful to know that this person and all, all of God's people that did not have very good reputations, if they're blood-bought children of God, they're still blood-bought children of God. Praise God for that. This is one of Christ's chosen children. She's just in a bad spot. Can you identify with that? Have you ever been in a bad spot? You might not have been in the spot that this woman was in, but we've all been in bad spots. He says, thou hast had five husbands, and the man whom thou hast now is not thy husband. In that thou saidst truly. And the woman's, you know, she's, she's getting a little nervous now. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You must be a prophet because you know something about me. And then she kind of changes the subject. But in the changing of the subject, directing it away from her, I want you to see what her true need was here. You'll see what's on her mind and her heart of hearts. Even though she's had this very difficult, dramatic life, where she's been five times divorced and now she's living with a man, I want you to see what her heart of hearts is saying and then you see what the heart of God says back to her. She says, our fathers worshipped, the Samaritans worshipped in this mountain and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What's on her mind? Worship. What does this woman need? She needs worship. She needs to understand better how to worship God. You understand that man, woman, or child, so many problems in your life are solved just by worshiping God. There's insight whenever you worship God and the Holy Spirit is blessing. There's instruction from the Word of God. And that's what this woman needed. She needed better instruction in the Word of God. And guess what? The living Word is standing, sitting right there in front of her. Jesus says, woman, believe me. Y'all see how he's matter of fact right there. He says, woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, you know not what. He's pretty direct, is he not? Now, that does not authorize you or me to be direct and offend someone. That's not what's going on here. This is the Son of God who knows everything about this woman, everything about the Jews, everything about Samaria, everything about what's going on in history. And he says, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman has said, don't we need to go to this mountain to worship? But y'all say go down to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, forget about all that. Because the hour has now come where you're not going to go up to the mountain and you're not going to go to Jerusalem, but the Father seeketh such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He is leading this broken woman to the truth of God's Word. And by the way, from all practical purposes, this is the first conversion that Jesus has, if you will, if that's a good way to put it. She's already born again. She's already seeking worship. She's already a child of God, but she doesn't understand what the truth is. And so He's leading her to the truth. He said, God is seeking... This is what He's saying. God is seeking you, Samaritan woman, five times divorced, living with a man... He's not just seeking you to continue to do what you're doing. He's seeking you to repent and turn from what you are. You see that? And the woman says, well, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us about all this. <laughs> That's ironic, isn't it? That's a little bit of quick foreshadowing. She says, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us what we need to do. <laughs> and Jesus says, I that speak unto thee and he. That was a startling, startling revelation for this woman, was it not? Now, this is what I want you to get out of that. Men, women, children. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary. And he was tired. But he still ministered to this woman. He put his hunger down. He put his thirst down. He put his weariness down. 
He put his tiredness down. It was more important for him as the man, as a man, to put her needs before his. Are y'all hearing me? That was more important. If Christ did this in this interaction with this less than reputable woman, should we not do that with one another? Specifically, we're speaking about how a man should interact with a woman, putting her needs first. What a lesson. So, Christ leads this woman to worship. It says in verse 28, the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city and said, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She's fully convinced this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, the disciples told him and the disciples have returned and they see him talking to her and they're like, what is he doing? (laughs) And they said, Master, eat. I, I read that verse to you just to emphasize to you that Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty, but he had something more important to take care of than his hunger and his thirst. That's a great lesson for true manliness. There's more important things to take care of than yourself. I thought every man in the whole building would go, Amen! (laughs) You can if you want to, but now you know. You don't have to, but... (laughs) They said, Master, eat. And look at what he says. I have meat to eat that you know not of. That's a great lesson to men. You have meat to eat that that others know not of. The weight and the responsibility that God lays upon a man and his interactions with a woman, whether she's wife, sister, friend co-worker, whatever it may be. We should look at the example of Christ and He put others' needs before Him. He put this less than respectful woman, He put her needs before His own needs and led her in a spiritual way. Okay? What did she need? (laughs) She needed to be led to worship. She didn't need another man. She'd already had five flops or five fixer-uppers that didn't work out. And then this guy that she's with who won't pony up and do the right thing and give her a ring or whatever needed to take place, or break up, you know, whatever needed to take place there. She didn't need that. She needed to worship. And all of that would take care of itself. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? That's where Christ led. Turn to John, the eighth chapter. And this is where Sister Lila's study that she had going on that kind of took a hold of me as we looked at it. John the 8th chapter. All right, the first time we see Jesus hungry, thirsty, weary, tired. And you see how he interacted with this woman at the well. John the 8th chapter, verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. Have you got the scene? He was sitting at the well, talking to the woman at the well. Now he's sitting down in the temple, teaching the people that are gathered there. He's in the middle of a sermon. And it says in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Here's another woman. This is another bad situation. And Jesus is rudely interrupted. He's rudely interrupted. He's there teaching. And all of a sudden, this, they come walking in with this woman, probably having her by each arm, and they just cast her down in front of him. I mean, that's a rude interruption when you're, when you're sitting there trying to preach and teach, Right? He's rudely interrupted. And they say to him, verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now a lot could be said about however this situation was set up and they caught her. And I've always wondered, where was the man? (laughs) You know, where's the man in this scenario? Because the man was committing adultery too. But anyway, that's a story for another day. It gives you some insight as to how they viewed women and how they mistreated women, you see? So they cast this woman there in front of the feet of Jesus, and they said, Master, she was caught in the act. Now, how embarrassing would that be? Somebody's dirty laundry to be brought right out there in public, right there where Christ is teaching. Moses and the law commanded that such should be stoned. This woman, under the law, it was commanded that she be put to death. By the way, it commanded that the man be put to death too. Again, where is he? (laughs) Now watch, you say, why did they do this? This is embarrassing. Oh, they were very just in their dealings and they, they felt a sense of equity. Not at all. It says that they tempted him. Verse 6, this they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him. They're trying to entrap him. This is entrapment. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. That's interesting that his reaction to being rudely interrupted 
is he just kind of went down to the ground. And he started drawing pictures in the, in the sand or in the ground. When I think of that, I think of my dad. And many times out on the farm, you know, he'd tell us, now boys, I need you to go do this. And I need you to open this gate, close this gate. And, and he would often, if we were out in the cattle lot or in, in the, on the dirt road, you know, he'd get down and clear him off a place on the sand. And he'd draw it because he knew that we were kind of dumb. You know, we'd need to have it drawn out clearly. So he'd draw it out. So, this is the gate over here at the corner. And he, I think about how many times he leaned over and drew pictures for us so we could understand better. Christ is basically just ignoring them. You, can you picture that? I, I think, I, I, this is my conjecture, I think he's mad too. I think he's angry. He's been rudely interrupted. Have you ever been rudely interrupted? You know, in the courtroom, there's been times, you know, when I would be going along and maybe making a closing argument or maybe making an opening argument or maybe question, often questioning a witness and all of a sudden you hear, objection, your honor. That makes me so mad when that happens. First of all, I think, what did I say? Why is he, that guy or that lady objecting? And then I think to myself, I wish they'd just be quiet. But of course, I do the same thing when they step out of line. I object, your honor. It's a really great way to throw off the other party, you know, when they're going. Now, I'm not saying I've ever done that baselessly. I've always had a basis to do it. But matter of fact, I've heard of a few lawyers, you know, that would drop their glass off of their, if things were going against them, they just accidentally, you know, push their glass off of their, their table and it bust, you know, and that's a way to distract things for sure. I've never done that, I promise. But you imagine just being interrupted rudely. That's what's happened with Christ right here. He's being rudely interrupted. He just leans down, he starts drawing in the sand. I think he's given them a chance just to go away. Stop mistreating this woman and go away. But they don't leave. Pharisees don't leave. They continue to ask him, Master, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do with this situation? And so he lifts up himself and he says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now that right there was the true meaning of the law. You know, Jesus is constantly saying, you have heard that it said in old days, old times. And he says, but I say unto you, this is what it really means. They never saw this coming. Now, let me say this. You say, well, how can we relate to that? Well, maybe from time to time, the wife or the children or the friend or the coworker, or whatever, maybe they've interrupted you and what you had going on from time to time. Maybe it sounds like this, as it often does in my house. Have you taken out the trash? <laughs> I don't have time to take out the trash. You know, I'm getting ready for this important closing argument, you know, that, that has, means so much more than taking out the trash. Well, somebody's got to take out the trash. <laughs> and then I think, you know, it's like that objection, you know, <laughs> you know, it is my job to take out the trash, and I haven't taken out the trash. So in those type of interruptions, how do we react? I'm going to tell you. If you react in the way that Christ teaches us to react right here, it will be a mind-blowing event for the ladies and the women and the girls in your life, men. <laughs> Instead of just going on and saying, I ain't got time for you. <laughs> you know, Christ here, he, he blows their mind with what He says. It's a good thing when a man or a boy, a young man, blows the mind of the ladies in his life by the way that he treats them in a godly way. Because there's so little of that out there today. Being treated with respect, being treated with kindness, being treated with love. Now, let me say this again. You, you ladies, young or old, you find a man like that one day, you better hold on to him. That's treating you with respect as God treated women with respect. He blows their mind. He's been rudely interrupted. I've often found myself interrupted. I'm going to do this. I want to do this. But maybe my wife or my daughters or my mother even. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I need to issue an apology to my mother from the pulpit right here. I'm up on the roof over Thanksgiving. I'm on the roof of a barn fixing tin. And I'm nailing, I'm nailing. I'm trying to get it done. I'm working fast. And here comes mom driving in. And she gets out of her car and she walks up to me and she says, Hey, I thought she said... Can you come to my house and help me find my cell phone? And I thought, I got to climb down a ladder, put my hammer down, put my nails down, and I got to get in the car and drive to her house. I didn't understand. I'm sorry, Mom. She'd lost her phone in her car. 
The car was right there. I felt so bad about it. I'm sorry, Mom. She interrupted what I was doing, and I didn't understand what she was saying. I should have got down there and helped her find her car. By the way, I heard it was just stuck down between the seats. It's no big deal. But I felt bad about that ever since then. You know, I didn't stop what I was doing to help one of the ladies in my life. What the ladies are doing in my life are more important than what I am doing. You understand that? Jesus is interrupted with what he's got going on in his teaching, and he blows their mind. He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Y'all see the point? It will blow the mind of the women and girls and ladies in your life, men, when you graciously and lovingly stop what you're doing and go and help them with what they're doing. And could you find a worse situation than this? This woman is here and they've brought the death penalty down on her head. And he says, he that is without sin cast the first stone. And they all began to just think, oh my goodness. We didn't come expecting that. And they just all one by one go out. Now don't think for a second. Don't think for a second that Jesus is excusing her sin. As a matter of fact, in just a few short months... The Son of God is going to go to the cross and die and pay for the very sin of adultery that this woman has committed here. He's not excusing her sin. But He does say to her after they all leave, verse 10, none but the woman were there when He lifted Himself up. And He says, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, if he just said, neither do I condemn thee, and that was the end of it, then you, could, you might have a slight argument to say, oh, well, see, Jesus was excusing her sin. No, he said, stop what you're doing. This is disgracing my covenant of redemption for you. Stop what you're doing. Go and sin no more. He says that at other times. So don't think for a second, you know, in this day and time when everybody doesn't understand, most people don't understand the term love. You know, love is not true love. True sacrificial redemptive love is not not accepting sin. You understand that? Not sweeping it under the rug. Not approving sin. True sacrificial redemptive love is this right here where he says, go forth and sin no more. Honor me by how you live your life. You see? So here you have Jesus interacting with an adulteress. He is rudely interrupted. And his interactions with her led to her worthiness. You see that? It led to her worthiness. She goes away thinking, my goodness, all I've got to do is repent. All I've got to do is say I'm not going to go in this direction anymore. What a a change was brought to her life by the interaction of the man Christ Jesus with her. And brothers, we can bring great changes to the lives of the ladies in our, that we're involved in in our lives by how we interact with them in a godly way. Great revival can be brought. You know, the next one is John 12. I think we're going to make it through all of these. If y'all can hang on to 12.30. No, I'm just kidding. In John the 12th chapter, we read about a great celebration, a great festive time, a great feast that took place in the house of of Mary and Martha. Six days before the Passover. This is the time, the clock is ticking down to when Jesus is going to go to the cross. And I've referred to this before as an all-star cast here at this meal. You've got Lazarus, who was raised from the dead just a chapter before. You've got Martha, the great domestic there, who is serving. She's the best caterer around. And you've got the apostles who were there, you know, from Peter Uh, to James, John, all of these guys. Even the traitor Judas is there. He's more infamous than he is famous. And in the midst of all of this, a little woman, just a little woman, comes along and steals the whole show. And look what she does at this feast in verse 3. Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And you'll read in the other accounts that, that she anointed His head also. And the house was filled with the odor of this ointment. Now this ointment, this perfume was probably worth at least a year's worth of salary. It's very expensive. How do we know that? Well, you can do a study on spikenard or ointment and how valuable it was and how it had to be, you know, had to be shipped from very far away to get here. And then also they go on and they say, why was this not sold? And the money from the sale given to help the poor. <laughs> One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, said this. Now, don't think that Judas had good intent here because Judas was really a thief 
And he wanted the money for himself. But he points out and he says, why was this not sold for 300 pence, which was about a year's worth of salary, and given to the poor? And then he said that not because he cared for the poor, because he was a thief, verse 6. And this is where Jesus' interaction with another woman comes in. As Mary is anointing him, Jesus says, let her alone. Let her alone. And no man is going to amen what I'm about to say. <laughs> no man. Unless you're a very, very brave man. You understand that this is Jesus' interaction with a woman in regards to her spending practices? At least I heard a baby cry. This is Jesus' interaction with a woman related to her spending. Are y'all with me? Am I right? Judas is like most of us men. I can't believe you spent money on that and then you wasted it, right? Jesus said, let her alone. Let her alone. Now, lest any woman goes away or girl or young woman goes away saying, well, this, Brother Tim said that I can go spend anything I want to. <laughs> Brother Tim said that my husband or my father or my friend or whatever, my boyfriend can't control or can't tell me what I can spend and what I can't. Did I say that? I did not say that. Now, thank you. Now, where the rubber meets the road, as they say, is here. What was she spending it on, right? She bought that expensive ointment. And she sacrificed that ointment on Jesus Christ. Are you with me? You see, in regard to her spending towards a spiritual matter, her giving towards the Lord, the way that she was conducting herself was approved of God. It makes me think of the way that Elkanah in 1 Samuel 1 dealt with his wife Hannah. You say, well, you know, can it really be related to just spending? It's not just related to spending, because if you remember Hannah, Hannah said, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Y'all remember that, Hannah and Elkanah over there in 1 Samuel 1? And so she has a son, and his name is Samuel, the last of the judges, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And, the, and she tells her husband, now when this boy gets here, I'm going to give him to the priest. The priest is going to adopt him. That's tough, isn't it? Hannah was his true love. You know what Elkanah says in 1 Samuel 1 and 23? He says, Do what seemeth thee good, only the Lord establish his word. Men, that would be a great thing for us to say to our wives. Do what seemeth thee good. Buy what you need to buy. Spend on what you need to spend on. Notice I said need, not want. <laughs> buy what you need to buy. Spend on what you need to spend on. And the Lord establish his word. I, I've failed in that through the years. I can remember... Being like a, a Scrooge miser, all a miser and Scrooge all in one. You know, you, you did what? You spent on what? And of course, then when Sister Tracy would tell me, well, this is why I'm that, this, that, the other, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> you know, it, it offends my miser with inside, but I see why you did it. <laughs> Y'all have heard me tell before, I'm picking on mom today, but you know, mom would say to dad, I, she'd say, I need to go to town and I need $20. Dad would give her $40. She'd say, I need, to, I need $100. Dad would give her $200. Every time I think about that, it just smacks me in the face because Tracy says, I need $20. And I'm like, can't you get by with 15? <laughs> that's me. Lord, help me. Lord, pray for me. But if you're sitting there and that's you, at least I'll admit it. I hope you'll admit it. You come try preaching sometime and admit your mistakes. It's not an easy thing to do. So here Jesus defends her. And in a sense, he defends her spending practices. He says, let her alone. Leave her alone. The Lord established His Word. Now, I've told you before, and it's worth saying it again. You say, what's going on there? I mean, that's weird. You know, she comes and she pours perfume on His head, and He sits there and He takes it. And she pours perfume on His feet and anoints His feet, anoints His head, and she wipes His feet with her long hair, which was very inappropriate for a woman to show her hair in that particular culture. It was very inappropriate for her to let down her hair like that. So what's really going on? I'll tell you what's going on. I don't think it's conjecture. I don't think it's my belief. This little girl, this little lady, Mary, had been listening to the preaching of Jesus. She's been listening to Him say, I must go to Jerusalem. I must die on a cross. She knows that His death is imminent. You see, the apostles are over there. Peter at one point says, Be it far from thee, Lord. And Jesus has to rebuke him and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's when Jesus said, I'm going to die. Well, this little Mary, she's been listening. I believe she's been listening to what he's saying and she knows it's close. And so she brings perfume. She didn't do this in a vacuum. It wasn't like 
you know, she was a robot and God was controlling her, she knew he was fixing to die. And so she brought perfume to anoint him with prior to his burial, which is just six days away. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus said that. <laughs> he said, let her alone. Because she's done this for my burial. I'm about to die, you see. He said, leave her alone. So men, young men, boys, when it comes to spending, I'm so glad, let me say this, I'm so glad that Sister Tracy doesn't require me to go out and do the spending, the groceries and the clothes and the shoes. You would be very humored to see what my kids would look like walking in if it was me going and buying their clothes. Because when I want something for me, I just go, hip, there it is, boop, I'm gone. That's just how I do. My kids would look like a bunch of ragamuffins through the years, you know, if it was me dressing them. Some of you say, well, you got a nice tie on, Brother Tim. I'm like, it's Sister Tracy. It's Sister Tracy. She brings in ties. And, you know, if I, if I look orderly and fashionable, if I even do, you know, it's because of the way she has approved of my presentation. You say, thank God she has not let, made me do that all these years. So praise God she's in that position that she does that. He defends her. And he made her life easier by taking up for her and not putting her down. Boy, that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, isn't it, men? Instead of putting her down, instead of berating her, he takes up for her. What does she need? You know, the woman at the well needed worship. The woman caught in adultery, she needed worthiness. And this woman right here, she needs her work to be approved. She is expressing herself. She's expressing herself towards the Savior. She's tearful. She's loving Him. And she understands that He's about to die. So Jesus says basically like what Elkanah said, do what seemeth to thee good. Only the Lord establishes Word. Last scene, John 19. By the way, I failed to mention, but all of these interactions with the, the women are in the book of John that we're looking at today. In John the 19th chapter, we won't spend very much time on this one because I want to close out in just a minute. But John 19 and 25 you can't get a more serious scene. Now, look, this is another overall thing I want you to understand. We got Jesus when He was hungry, tired, and thirsty. And you see how He interacts with the women in His life. Then we got Jesus rudely interrupted. Rudely interrupted. And you see how He interacted with that woman. And then you've got Jesus sitting at a feast, eating. And a woman comes and starts pouring oil on his head. <laughs> that's, that's a little strange. And you see how he handled that. Is that not a lesson to us as men? Some of you men are looking at me this morning like a mule looking at a new gate. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Don't worry. When I studied this and looked at this, I was that mule looking at a new gate. I'm like, I'm not a man. <laughs> I'm a mouse. I'm a nothing. So here in John 19 and 25, we've got Jesus' interaction with one of the greatest women in His life. And maybe you guessed it. It's His mother. And it says in John 19 and 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus. Now I want you to notice who was there with Him at the cross. Everybody else had turned tail and fled. But His mother was there and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. That's very unusual, isn't it? you got Mary His mother, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and you got Mary Magdalene. That's really strange, isn't it? I don't have any deep, dark commentary on that. I just think that's interesting. Three Marys there at the cross. And when Jesus saw His mother, now He's on the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. Can you get any more pivotal of a moment than this in history, in the life of Him as the man Christ Jesus? He is there at the precipice of where He is about to give up His life. The sins of God's people are being laid upon Him and the wrath of God is being poured out upon His very Son. Is there any more of a pivotal moment than this? The sun is about to be darkened. It's about to go completely dark. This is the greatest event that has ever occurred in the history of man. Greater than creation. Greater than NASA landing on the moon. Greater than all of these events. This is the greatest event of all time. And he's hanging there and he looks and he sees his mother. I think I've told you all before a few times in court, especially this one guy I'll never forget. He was all cocky and prideful. and He comes into court. He's not going to pay no child support. Even though he's $20,000 behind. And he's walking around like a banny rooster, you know. Uh, nobody can tell me what to do. He's about 20 years old. And then the judge said, arrest him and put him in jail. And he said, Mama, Mama. <laughs> he started crying for his mother right there in court. Mama, help me, Mama. 
Well, he's real tough after he got the cuss put on him, you see. I can identify with that because there have been times in my life when I just want to cry out, Mama, come help me. Sometimes when you're married, if your mother is still living, you know, and maybe you get crossed up about this or that or the other, and you can't figure that, well, let's just call Mama. One thing to never say, men, is Mama when you're trying to deal with your wife. Don't ever call for Mama. And let me also just throw this in there, too. If you're sitting at the table and you're eating food and she cooks food and puts it in front of you, do not ever say, well, this doesn't taste like Mama's. That is a death knell right there. Ah, she'll probably put the food on top of your head at that point, and rightly so. That boy called for his mama. I've wanted to call for my mama at times in my life. Here's Jesus in the most pivotal moment of all of history, and he says, woman, behold thy son. Now listen, you might think, well, he's talking about himself. Oh, mama, please behold me. No, no. There's another person there at the cross with these three Marys. And you know what his name is? His name is John, the writer of John the Gospel. So you got the three Marys and you got John. Praise God for John, right? He's the one that laid his head on Jesus' shoulder. He's the one that referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was too humble to even refer to himself by name. He said, it's the, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John is there while all the other disciples have fled. Judas has gone and hanged himself. And the other disciples are running like scared little, little kittens. There's John at the cross with the mother of Jesus and the other two Marys. And J Jesus looks at his mother and she says, Woman, behold thy son. John is now your adopted son. And he says to the disciple, John, he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother. Right there on the cross, a legal transaction took place right as your sins were being paid for, praise God. And he uh, had caused an adoption to take place right there so that his mother would be taken care of whenever he was gone. How about that? Can you get any more compassionate and more loving? What did his mother need? She needed to be cared for. She needed to be cared for. Y'all getting these lessons? <laughs> these lessons excite me. They terrify me. They make me want to be more careful about what I say and how I interact with the ladies and young ladies and girls in my life. Lord, help me. I'm a mess. And if you're sitting there thinking, hmm, who is that preacher to tell me, blah, blah, blah. I'll keep praying for you. But I want to leave you with this little, I don't think this is a true story. I know it's not a true story, but it makes a beautiful, it's an account and it makes a beautiful account. Listen to this. A woman met a man and this man seemed to be kind and loving and gentle, so she married this man. After the honeymoon, her husband laid out for her what he expected out of her in the marriage. He expected his breakfast cooked each morning and dinner on the table each night at a specific time. He required his clothes to be cleaned and pressed and laid out for him each morning, and the house to be spotless and cleaned each day regardless of what she might have going on. And so dejected and disappointed, she proceeded to slavishly cook and clean and sweep and dust and press and wash, and after only one week, it was obvious, she could not keep up with the routine that her husband demanded of her. So when she first began to fail at his demands, he began to chastise her and ridicule her and berate her and belittle her and hold over her head the many, many ways that she was failing as the wife that he had demanded. And lo and behold, after a few years of grueling marriage that was more like a prison, he died. Out of the blue, he died one day. And she moved on. Felt like she was set free from a prison. Then a few years later, she met another man. And the man seemed to be kind and loving and gentle and different than her first husband, who turned out to be so cruel and demanding. And through the course of time, they married. And after the honeymoon, her new husband set his new wife down and explained to her what he expected out of her in the marriage. He told her he expected his breakfast to be cooked each morning and dinner on the table each night at a specific time. His clothes must be cleaned and pressed and laid out for him each morning. And the house must be spotless and cleaned each day, regardless of what she might have going on. And so, in horror, feeling like it was some kind of deja vu nightmare, dejected and disappointed, she proceeded to slavishly cook and clean and sweep and press and wash. And after only one day, she gave up. It was obvious she could not keep up with the identical routine that her new husband demanded, just like her first husband. And she could not imagine how she allowed herself to be back in the same predicament as before. So she dreaded him coming home that day. 
She was on pins and needles and sick to her stomach when he pulled in. And the house was not clean. The furniture was not dusted. The floors were not swept. Supper was not ready. Clothes that needed to be folded were strewn around the den. She fought back tears when he walked in. But he kissed her and simply went to his chair, moved some clothes over that needed to be folded and sat down and began to read his paper. It was obvious the house was not clean. Supper was not ready. She somehow went on making supper and set it on the table later and he came to supper with a kind look on his face and sat down and they quietly ate until she could not take it anymore. She cried out to him, how can this be? I haven't done anything you demanded of me. I've fallen short of your demands. The clothes are not washed. The house is not clean. The floors are not swept. The furniture's not dusted. Supper was late. And there's no way I can get your clothes clean and pressed before the morning. And you have demanded this of me. And my past husband demanded this also. And when I could not keep up with his demands, he was so cruel to me. Why are you not being cruel to me? Why are you not treating me like he did? I'm not able to do as you have demanded. And the husband looked up from his meal smiled gently at her and said, you want to know why I'm not being cruel and unkind to you? Because you have failed to live up what I asked of you? You want to know why I'm not berating or belittling you because you were not able to live up to what I demand? He said, it is because I love you. I love you in spite of any faults or failures you may have. And I will have mercy on you because I love you. You want to be a real man? If you're hungry, thirsty, faint, <laughs> lead the women in your life to worship. If you're rudely interrupted, lead them to worthiness. If you're confronted with her spending, be kind. And if she's spending in a way that honors God, then approve of that. Just leave her alone. In the pivotal moments in your life, whenever the Lord has blessed you with great success, men, just lead her to well-being like Jesus led His mother to well-being in the most pivotal moment of His life. You've heard the saying, behind every great man is a greater woman. And behind every greater woman is the man Christ Jesus. I hope that we'll take these lessons as men, as women, as children. I hope we'll take them to heart.